to another episode of No Trash, Just Truth. No Trash, Just Truth is a podcast of Proverbs 910 Ministries. We're your hosts, Rose Spiller and Chris Paxson. Welcome back. We hope all of you are enjoying this series, Christians Every Christian Should Know. Chris and I are having a blast doing it and looking into all these people, learning a lot of things we didn't know about a lot of people. If you missed last week's interview with Paul and Stephanie Cox of RefTunes, check it out. They do fantastic work spreading the gospel, teaching church history in a really unusual way. It's definitely worth listening to or watching. It is. Yep, it is. And today we're going to go back in history again to the time of the Reformation. This time we're going to go to the Reformation in France. That's the birthplace of John Calvin that we talked about two weeks ago. We often think of the Reformation starting with Martin Luther, but before Luther came on the scene, God was already placing reformers in countries other than Germany and Switzerland, two places that we normally think of when it comes to the Reformation. France was one of those countries. The group who led the French Reformation is known as the Huguenots, and we'll give you an overview of their history, but we're going to focus in on two women, a mother and daughter, who were instrumental in the French Protestant movement. It wasn't an easy movement by any stretch of the imagination. No, it wasn't. Reformation of the church in France looked almost impossible from a human standpoint in the early 1500s. France staunchly supported the Church of Rome. The church and state were intertwined. It wasn't unusual for nobility to become an archbishop, nor for them to pass their church title down to a relative or even to the highest bidder. France also had close ties with the papacy. Seven popes sat on the papal throne in the French city of Avignon, rather than the city of Rome. In addition to that, the leading theological university in Europe was the Sorbonne in Paris. It was, of course, a Catholic university. Whenever there was a theological dispute, Sorbonne was considered the authority in the decision. Just an example of how they felt about the Reformation, in 1521, the university condemned Martin Luther as an enemy of the Church of Christ, who vomited up a doctrine of pestilence, as they put it. And another reason that the Reformation in France was difficult was that since the establishment of the Inquisition, which is the organized persecution of non-Catholics by the Catholic Church, that was established centuries earlier, being a Protestant could literally mean losing your life. And it did for a lot of them. It certainly did, as we're going to see. Yet with all these things working against the Reformation in France, God was working in the hearts of his people, regenerating them and bringing them to a saving knowledge of Christ and to the truth as is taught in the Bible, not as the Roman church was teaching. One of those men was a doctor of divinity, Jacques Lefebvre, professor at the University of Sorbonne. He was a brilliant, devout Catholic. Around 1507, Dr. Lefebvre was writing life stories of many of the saints that he regularly worshipped. One day, he found a Bible in the Sorbonne Library, and he thought to himself, and this is a novel thought, that the Bible might help him in his writing about the saints. But instead of finding out about the saints as he read the Bible, he found out about the Lord Jesus Christ and the true doctrine of the faith. 
He started studying Paul's epistles and began teaching his students that justification was by faith alone. He continued teaching more of his findings to his students, despite the fact that those teachings went against the Roman Catholic Church. I just love how God works. I just love I it. I do too. Yep. So cool. It was around the same time that a young student named William Farrell was attending Sorbonne. Farrell was impressed by the devotion to the Lord that he saw in his professor, Jacques Lefebvre, and that led him to the Lord. Farrell came to understand and believe all the doctrines of the Reformation. His dear teacher, as he called him, Lefebvre, often told him, and I'm quoting, my dear William, God will renew the world and you will see it. Later, Farrell became one of the leaders in the Reformation, and it was Farrell that later worked with John Calvin and urged him to assist the Reformation in Geneva, Switzerland. Like I said, just so cool how it's all interconnected and God was working in all of them. I know, and it's it's just amazing. On January 25th, 1515, Francis of Orleans became king of France. Francis largely saw himself as a humanist, And at this time in history, the humanist movement actually played a role in promoting Protestantism, especially amongst the nobility and those who are educated. As opposed to England, where Henry VIII was banning books and following the ways of Catholicism that didn't allow any books like Luther's, King Francis, for the moment at least, saw himself as thoughtful and reasonable, not as a tyrannical Catholic ruler. That changed later, which we'll get to, but for the time, this is how he's looking at himself. It's funny how Henry VIII was all all in on the Catholic Church till it didn't suit him. When they wouldn't let him get a divorce, he just kicked it to the curb. Kind of like false teachers. Exactly like false teachers. As long as it serves your purpose, it's good. When it doesn't, you move on to something else. Mm -hmm. King Francis also had a sister, Princess Marguerite of Angoulême, and she was born on April 11th, 1492. Marguerite was a beautiful, virtuous, and educated woman. She received the same expensive and thorough education as her brother. And at the age of 10, if you can believe it, she was offered in marriage to the Prince of Wales, who would later become Henry VIII. And she wisely rejected that. And certainly looking back in history, that was a wise decision. Marguerite was married twice. When she was 17, she married Charles IV of Alencon. He was kind, but it was an arranged marriage for the sake of politically keeping land in the family, as a lot of those marriages were. They didn't have any children, and Charles died in 1525. Like Dr. Lefevre's conversion to Protestantism, God converted other individuals who held important positions in France. And one of those was Marguerite. She was converted sometime during her first marriage. Marguerite and her brother Francis were very close. Francis said this about his sister. My sister Marguerite is the only woman I ever knew who had every virtue and every grace without any admixture of vice. Pretty nice thing to say about your sister. Yeah, I don't know how his wife would feel about that. Francis's wife was chronically ill, so Marguerite often functioned ceremonially and socially as queen. That gave her the opportunity to speak of Christ while she was in the court, which was, as we said before, Roman Catholic. 
She used her position to spread and protect Protestantism, and she hoped that Francis would become the Reformation's political defender, something that would have been very dangerous to do. And that's because individuals who pushed for reform had a target on their back. Marguerite had friends who were arrested. She begged her brother Francis to have them freed, which he did. One time, her valet, who was also a Protestant, was arrested. She got him released, which was a good thing, because if she hadn't, the French church wouldn't have their translation of the Psalms, something they sang for centuries because he translated them. In 1523, a man named Berquin, a French nobleman, was arrested for his evangelical ideas. He was arrested again two years later. Both times, Marguerite's influence got him released. But Protestantism was becoming a real issue, bigger and bigger. And it was so public, even Marguerite could only get her brother to go so far in defending it. When Berquin was arrested a third time for his faith, Francis refused to listen to Marguerite's pleas, and Berquin was martyred on April 22, 1529. Marguerite's diplomatic prowess wasn't just with her brother. Four years before Francis had Berquin killed for his faith, Charles V of Spain captured Francis himself in battle and imprisoned him. Who got Francis released? His sister Marguerite. With Marguerite's husband being killed in that same battle with Spain, she was free to marry Henry II of Navarre less than two years later, making her queen of the region of Navarre, which was a small region in between France and Spain. They had a big, splendid wedding, but Henry wasn't a Protestant, and his kingdom was untouched by the doctrines of the Reformation. That is, until Margaret got there, and when she did, she spread evangelicalism by her examples and things she wrote and other things that she did. She held private services in her apartments and celebrated the Lord's Supper in an underground hall to keep it secret. But Henry found out about it. And I guess they had been fighting about it because he was tired of her lack of submission to his theological positions, and he struck her in the face. She reported the incident to Francis, who, being very protective of his sister, he threatened Henry with war. Now, Henry only ruled this small kingdom of Navarre, so the thought of war with the king of France was terrifying to him. So he begged his wife to forgive him, promising to allow Reformed worship and actually to read about Reformed doctrines himself. With his sister safe, Francis returned to Paris. The religious battle between Catholicism and Protestantism was still heating up, though. Francis loved his sister, but he needed to strengthen his political position. So guess what? He banned Protestant books and socially cut off the Reformed people from the court. Political power. It's amazing how it corrupts people. Yep. In 1528, Marguerite gave birth to a daughter, Jean. Two years later, Francis has the child taken away to raise her as a French princess where she would be raised Roman Catholic, and he kept her away from her mother's reformed doctrines. Marguerite paid a steep price for being public about her faith, but she continued to serve the reformed people in France in any way that she could. In 1531, she became the first Protestant female poet. 
1533, the Sorbonne condemned her writing as Lutheran, which made things dangerous for her. Francis got the faculty to retract their censure, and Marguerite continued writing, though her and her brother had drifted farther and farther apart. I guess so. We took her daughter. Absolutely. In France in 1534, something called the Affair of the Placards occurred. One night, some Protestants who became known as the Huguenots printed off a number of placards that mocked the mass and spoke ill of the Virgin Mary, and they posted those around Paris. They were even so bold as to have someone sneak in and put one on King Francis's bedchamber door. Someone with opposing viewpoints sneaking into the bedroom of the king is treason. Yeah, I'm sure it was. In essence, it's saying we don't like your ways and we can get to you while you were sleeping. It was definitely a threat. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That made Francis really turn on the Protestants. A number of them were burned at the stake in Paris. Some conformed, some fled, and some went into hiding. It drove Calvin from France to Switzerland. We talked about that when we did the episode on him. The Huguenots were becoming a large and unyielding group. Eventually, Francis ordered the execution of all heretics, as he called them, meaning Protestants. Marguerite did everything she could to protect Protestantism. Whenever she would visit Paris, Francis would not allow anyone to be martyred out of respect for his sister. Marguerite invited many Huguenots to her place in Nairac, which was the castle in Navarre, to escape persecution. There she dined and discussed passages of scripture and doctrine with John Calvin, who she also corresponded with, and many other famous and not-so-famous reformers who went and found safety there. Marguerite's deep faith, her writings, and her other work left a strong legacy for her daughter, Jean, who Marguerite was confident would follow in her footsteps, which shows in some words that she wrote, which say, God, I am assured, will carry forward the work he has permitted me to commence, and my place will be more than filled by my daughter, who has the energy and moral courage in which I fear I have been deficient. So she had a lot of confidence her daughter would become Protestant. Yeah, certainly sounds like she did. In 1541, Marguerite's daughter, Jean, was forcibly married at age 12, something she protested to in writing. The marriage was never consummated, and her husband, the Duke of Cleves, went off to war. Jean went home to her mother. Marguerite finally got the opportunity to instruct her daughter in the Protestant faith. Four years later, Jean's marriage was annulled and Jean was married a second time, this time to Antoine, who was the Duke of Vendum. This time it was for love, at least it was love for her. In 1547, Marguerite's dear brother Francis I died. His son, Henry II, took the throne of France. Marguerite died in December two years later. Although she'd done much work for Protestantism and was a true believer, Marguerite never formally renounced her Catholicism. Six years later, Marguerite's daughter, Jean de Albret, ascended to the throne of Navarre, ruling jointly with her husband, Antoine, upon the death of her father in 1955. One year after that, because of a freak jousting accident, 
Henry II, King of France, dies, and his young son, Francis II, ascends to the throne, leaving a power vacuum because he's so young. The Huguenots make an unsuccessful attempt to seize control of the throne by gaining control of the young king. But someone found out about the plot, and many Huguenots were arrested or killed. And from 1560 on, there were three houses or three families vying for control of the crown of France and thus control of the religion. Would France staunchly remain Roman Catholic or would the Protestants gain the freedom to worship? That was the question. There were three families vying for power. One was the Valois family, and that was King Francis and his lineage. And they were leaning Catholic, but they were not going to let the Catholics persecute the Huguenots. Then there was the Guy family. They were staunch Catholics who wanted the Huguenots brutally done away with. The third noble house was Jeans. That was the Bourbons. And they were obviously in support of the Protestant movement. In 1560, Jean formally converted to Calvinism. She became the spiritual and the political leader of the French Huguenots. Her husband, Antoine, who had business dealings in Paris and was having affairs there, was Protestant, but not nearly as staunchly as Jean was. Afraid of losing his political clout, he renounced the Reformed faith. Despite a government edict meant to quell the escalating tension between Protestant and Catholics in France, and that would allow Protestants to worship in public outside of towns and privately inside of them, the Duke of Guy massacred 80 to 200 Huguenot worshipers in a battle known as the Massacre of Vassy. This was the first battle in a series of skirmishes known as the French Wars of Religion. And those wars lasted from 1562 to 1598. Even in Navarre, Jean was under personal attack. John Calvin wrote to her from Geneva, and he said, I know, madam, that you are the prime target. Do not fail to stand firm. Jean and Antoine had five children, two of which survived childhood, Henry and Catherine. From Paris, Antoine demanded Henry be sent to him and placed under Roman Catholic teachers. Not long after that, Antoine died from a bullet wound as he was cared for by one of his mistresses. Hmm. As a widow, Jean could rule without hindrance. She started curbing Roman Catholicism in Navarre and licensing Calvinist preachers in the country. Calvinism even became the official religion of Navarre. In 1563, the Pope tried to force Jean to come to Rome or forfeit her lands, but Jean didn't back down. Instead, she convinced the French court of the danger of allowing the Pope to take other lands. In the fall of that year, a kidnapping attempt was made on Jean by the King of Spain. At this point, she was starting to have some health issues, but despite her poor health, the attempt made Jean spiritually stronger. This is another commonality we've seen between all these guys. Her next goal was to get her son Henry out of France. And upon a visit to him, she got permission for them to go riding together. And she had secretly sent a messenger to Navarre to have armed forces ready to meet them and to escort them both home. Hours later, they both galloped into their home country. 
By 1566, Jean had banned gambling and prostitution, established Calvinist churches, and established a seminary. Despite attempts at peace, war between the Huguenots and the Roman Catholics continued. Jean took Henry and gathered with the Huguenots at La Rochelle, where she governed and directed the army, sometimes even herself, for three years. And like you said, Chris, there were several attempts at peace. One idea to obtain it was a marriage between Henry of Navarre, Jean's son, and the French king's daughter, Margaret of Valois. And that was the house that was somewhat lenient towards the Huguenots, one of the three that were vying for the throne. The agreement was made despite Jean's hesitancy. Jean never made it to the wedding. She got sick two months before, and she died on June 9th, 1572, at the age of 44. Jean's mother had worked more quietly behind the scenes to promote Protestantism, but Jean had been really public and bold. In her words, she said she would rather lose her whole country than ever commit herself to idolatry and go to mass. She even sold her jewels to help the Protestant cause in France. Before Jean's death, she urged her children to continue fighting for the Reformed faith. Two months after her death, the most powerful Huguenot nobility entered Paris for the wedding of Henry and Margaret. During the week-long festivities celebrating the marriage, Coligny, a powerful Huguenot, was shot. The Huguenots demanded justice. Afraid of Protestant forces storming the capital, the court decided to preemptively strike the Huguenot leadership. Catholic kill squads were sent out. One of them broke into the house where Coligny was recovering, castrated him, and threw his dead body into the street. For five days, Catholics massacred Calvinist men, women, and children and looted their houses. There was widespread panic throughout all of France. It's estimated that 25,000 Huguenots were killed in Paris and 10 to 15,000 throughout the countryside of France. Though these French wars of religion would continue for another 25 years, that slaughter, Chris, that you talked about, which is known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, that broke the spirit of the French Huguenots. At the lay level, many were afraid of being burned in their churches or killed in some other way. Some still worked at the political level, but many of the Huguenots fled France. Between two and four million people died from these French wars on religion, Protestants. Some of them, not just from being killed, but from famine and disease. Jean's son, Henry, did eventually sit on the throne of France. He was Henry IV of France. He's also known as Good King Henry and Henry the Great. He initially kept his Protestant faith, but realizing that Paris would never capitulate to a Protestant king, he converted to Catholicism. And here's what he said. He said, Paris is well worth a mass. However, in 1598, he decreed the Edict of Nantes, which guaranteed religious liberties to Protestants and effectively ended the French wars of religion. So France was a mess for a long time. A very long time. About 200,000 Huguenots fled France during those years of fighting. 
to many places all over the world. Brazil, South Africa, the Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, America, and several other countries. Some famous descendants of the Huguenots are George and Martha Washington, Ulysses S. Grant, Gerald Ford, Marlon Brando, Johnny Depp, Keith Richards, Sam Walton, Tom Brokaw, Alexander Hamilton, Davy Crockett, Paul Revere, and many, many more. It's just amazing what God used to spread the Reformation all over the world. Just it amazing. Is. And that's a good place to end for today. Don't forget, if you haven't already, follow us on all social media and check out our website. You can find out everything that's going on in the Proverbs 910 ministry universe. Have a blessed day, everyone.